Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 26, verses 15 through 29. Uh, we are in, a, in the middle of a section uh, describing how to construct the tabernacle, which, as we uh, discussed last week, this is um, when God has brought the people out of slavery in Egypt, and he's brought them to Mount Sinai, and he's telling them, I am going to be your God. You're going to be my people. This is how this is going to work. And one of the things that has to happen is for, um, you know, in order for a holy God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people is there's got to be a way for that to happen. And so God actually makes a way where otherwise there is no way. He kind of has a habit of doing that. And he gives the instructions for uh, all kinds of things, but particularly a tabernacle to be set up in the midst of their camp. And so everywhere they go, they're set up this tabernacle, this tent, uh, where God will dwell in the midst of his people. And uh, as we mentioned last week, uh, when you look at uh, John chapter 1, there's a verse there where it talks about how Jesus, <laughs> says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And how the, talking about how the word there is actually, the word, it's like a verb of tabernacle. And <laughs> so he uh, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And so even as we um, are reading descriptions of uh, like blueprints and we're like, what does this have to do with anything? It all has to do with us by way of having to do with Jesus. Um, anyway, so this is verses 15 through 29 of Exodus chapter 26. And before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and God, we do thank you for your word which you've given to us, and God, we do pray that you would help us as we hear your word read and proclaimed to have ears to hear, and help us to have minds to think and hearts that are ready to receive your word into our lives, that we would be changed by your word and by your spirit evermore into the people that you have made us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Exodus 26, starting in verse 15. Make upright frames of acacia wood for the tabernacle. Each frame is to be 10 cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, with two projections set parallel to each other. Make all the frames of the tabernacle in this way. Make 20 frames for the south side of the tabernacle and make 40 silver bases to go under them, two bases for each frame, one under each projection. For the other side, the north side of the tabernacle, make 20 frames and 40 silver bases, two under each frame. Make six frames for the far end, that is, the west end of the tabernacle, and make two frames for the corner at the far end. At these two corners, they must be double from the bottom all the way to the top and fitted into a single ring. Both shall be like that. So there will be eight frames and 16 silver bases, two under each frame. Also, make crossbars of acacia wood, five for the frames on one side of the tabernacle, five for those on the other side, and five for the frames on the west at the far end of the tabernacle. The center crossbar is to extend from end to end at the middle of the frames. Overlay the frames with gold and make gold rings to hold the crossbars. Also, overlay the crossbars with gold. Turning then to our gospel reading, this is from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Jesus had just been teaching and then it says, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant 
whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to ask to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning we are continuing our uh, series in the book of 1 Corinthians and our Advent series of chapter 13 of the book of 1 Corinthians. And so uh, what we've been looking at so far is uh, bringing up to speed is the uh, the way that Paul is writing this letter to a church that is in the midst of a culture that is not following Jesus. And yet this church, they want to follow Jesus. They have committed themselves to following Jesus. And yet, because they're in the midst of a culture that's not following Jesus, they're getting pushed and pulled and are drifting and are even doing things um, that are where they're looking more like the culture than they are like Jesus. And in some ways, not even recognizing it. And so Paul has been writing this letter, pointing us out and explaining to them how, uh, you know, what you are doing is not the Jesus way. It's the culture way. And so he keeps directing them back. And so we see, you know, the divisions at the beginning of uh, how they're wanting to, oh, I follow this person, I follow that person, and all these different... It's like, we're all teaching you the same thing. Yes, we've got different personalities, but we're all part of the same team. And, um, and so to divide based on which one of us, that's what the culture does. That's not what the church does. The church is to unite and be part of the body of Christ, and we've seen that as we move forward. Um, specifically talking about the gifts that are given to the church by God. And he gives gifts to the church for the purpose of building up and, uh, and encouraging. And they're not all the same gifts, but they all have the same purpose. And, uh, and yet what was happening in the church is God was giving this church gifts and they were using them to try to create different levels within the church of, oh, well, I've got I'm better than this other person because I've got this gift and they only have this other. Ugh, terrible. And he's like, that's not what these are for. This is, these gifts are not given to divide. They're to unite. And they're actually to build up and encourage and strengthen the whole body. And so he talks about this image of the body of Christ and how we are actually a part of this body. And, they, and with a body, there are different functions, but it all works together. That's the idea. That's why these have been given. And then... That's what gets us into 1 Corinthians 13. Because while he's in the middle of talking about spiritual gifts and the purpose of these and all that, he kind of takes this pause and is like, you know, we kind of can't go any farther on this topic unless you all are really clear about something. And so he uh, spends a whole chapter talking about love. 
And so we have spent our the season of Advent talking about this chapter of love. And so the first week we looked at uh, the first few verses and the indispensability of love and how uh, it talks about it doesn't matter what gift you have. If you don't have love, it doesn't matter. Those gifts are useless. They don't do anything if they're not done in love. Then last week we looked at uh, the descriptions of love and how uh, there's a it's much more demanding. We uh, talked about the uh, line in the Bible Project video where they uh, are mentioning Jesus saying that the greatest command is to love God and to love others. And John is like, oh, that's great because we all want to love. And he's like, oh, we think we want to love. But actually, love like Jesus is more demanding than we've at first realized. And so we went through last week and we looked at how Jesus meets the description of love in each of these categories. And we see what a high bar that is. But we also looked at uh, how Jesus has commanded us to love. And so we can't say, oh, well, I guess I'll never do that. And so just give up. But instead, we look at it and say, this is a high bar. This is actually impossible for us to do apart from Jesus. And yet, uh, we have seen time and again, that with Jesus, we can do what he has uh, given us to do, and that he enables us to do what he has commanded us to do. This week, we're going to look at something a little different. We will uh, read the whole chapter here in just a second, but this next section uh, has to do with kind of that, um, when you look at the way of Jesus, And you see how he loves. And instead of having the reaction of, yes, that is good, and I would love to live like that, but it's just so hard. I covered that last week. This time, it's more the, yes, I see how he uh, lives, and that's ridiculous. I don't even understand why anybody would do that. That's what we're going to talk about today. (laughs) So here we go. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, um, looking at, Ah, Love again. Here we go. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. 
when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So we are specifically looking uh, today at kind of verses 8 through 12. And, uh, and looking at not the description of love, but the, um, let's say, when, when we read that description and we go, that's ridiculous. Why would anybody live like that? That is not the way the world works. I mean, think about it. Patient? Kind? Rejoicing with truth? Protecting, trusting, hoping, persevering. Does that describe the world that we live in and the way that everything operates better or worse than the following? Proud, self-seeking, easily angered, envious, boastful, dishonoring others, keeping record of wrongs and delighting in evil. Right? Now, to be fair, we live in a world where there is a mix of both. But I think it's, uh, I think it's sometimes easy for people to say, look, we live in a world where those are the things that actually get you ahead. And so that's what you got to do. You need to be proud. You need to be self-seeking. You need to be easily angered. You need to be envious and boastful and dishonor others and keep record of wrongs. And, you know, delight in evil. It's part of it. Yeah, like that. There you go. <laughs> and in fact, that's not new. This is, the, this is the world that Jesus is born into. This is the world that Jesus grows up in. This is the world that Jesus begins to teach in and begins to teach a very different way than that. And we, see, we saw it last week. We looked at example after example after example of the way that Jesus actually lives this way of love consistently in everything. And you know what? It confused a lot of people. People did not understand why in the world he would be doing the things that he was doing. It didn't make any sense. And not just like the people who were his enemies, but even his disciples. <laughs> you remember, and we've uh, mentioned this in last week as well, the, uh, the number of times that Jesus tells his disciples, I am going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be killed but on the third day I'm going to rise again. And his disciples, well-meaning, with Peter kind of as the spokesperson, Peter kind of pulls him aside and he's like, that's never going to happen to you. Don't be talking like that. Why? Why is Peter saying this? He didn't get it. Jesus actually has to tell him, 
You don't have in mind the things of God. What you have in mind are human concerns. And that right there is the difference. We tend to have human concerns. We're thinking about things from a worldly perspective. And when we think about things from a worldly perspective, love doesn't make sense. And we go, if our goal is to get ahead in this world, how does love do that? And that's why Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, look, if you keep talking like this, you're not going to get ahead in this world. And Jesus is like, you have misunderstood what I'm about. The night before Jesus actually goes to the cross, he gets up from the table, puts a towel around his waist, and goes to wash his disciples' feet. And Peter, once again, oh, you're not going to wash my feet. No, 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 no. You're, you're the leader. You're the, you're the rabbi. You're the teacher. You don't do stuff like that. And Jesus is like, you don't get it. <laughs> you're not thinking right. You're not seeing the full picture here. And that's the point. Paul talks about the, the various gifts. Prophecies, tongues, knowledge. And he says, all that stuff, there will come a time when that passes away. But you know what's never going to pass away? Is love. That never goes away. And we think about, uh, you know, the purpose of each of those. Why you would need to have prophecy. Why you would need to have tongues. Why you would need to have knowledge. And it is something that's for now. But, as he says, you know, we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. And uh, I, I love the images he uses here. Talk about these, I'm going to add one more. First one he uses is the image of a child. He says, when I was a child, talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, right? That makes sense, because he was a child. (laughs) How else can you do it, right? And that's his point, that when he was a child, of course he thought like a child, because he had the perspective of a child. He was a child. But then, of course, as he became a man, that changes. Now, who here has been a child? All right, some of you have forgotten, but you were at one point. (laughs) And... Those of you who are still children, you're like, I don't, I mean, of course you see like a child. I don't know what it means to see like an adult. Uh, however, those of you who have had both experiences, you know there's a difference, don't you? And you can remember some things that didn't make sense to you when you were a kid. Things maybe your parents did or your teachers did, and you're like, that's the dumbest thing ever. I can't believe they're doing this. And then, <laughs> maybe that was just me, and then, <laughs> and then you become an adult, you in, even those who have become parents and they find themselves saying the things that their parents said that they swore they would never say and they're like, oh my goodness, I've become my mom. Um, <laughs> but it happens because you have a different perspective on things and the things that you thought, this is the wor- they're making this terrible decision, I don't understand why they're doing this and then you become an adult and you're like, oh, now I totally know why they did this. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the way we're going to do this. That doesn't mean that everything that parents do is exactly right. It's an example. <laughs> Uh, and his point is, you know, we are told in First uh, John, John says something very similar to this kind of language. 1 uh, 
First John chapter three says, see what great love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is as it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Now, he gives us another image, and that being reflection as in a mirror. Now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now, we have much better mirrors than they had back then. And so you're like, I don't understand the difference between seeing in a mirror and seeing the face. It would have been a pretty big difference. We're talking about like shiny metal is what we're looking into uh, back then, and maybe not all that shiny. And so what you're seeing is right, but it's not the same thing. Uh, I, I think, actually, today, a uh, way that we might talk about this is even with something like uh, FaceTime or Zoom or something like that, right? Because, well, that gives you a very clear image. You can 4K, high definition, right? And yet... You know it's not the same, is it? To have a video call with somebody or to be in the same room with them. There's a lot that you can have uh, of communication and the way that you can um, you communicate, you can see each other, and it's not that what you're seeing is wrong, but it's not complete. It's really hard to hug a Zoom or a FaceTime call, you know? It's not complete. And what he's saying is, uh, now we know in part, then we should know fully. Here's uh, um, another image that I like to think of in these terms is, uh, if you can imagine being at the end of a really long hall, and you're looking all the way down the hall, and at the end of the hall, there's a window. Next time you go like to a hotel where it has a super long hall and there's a window at the end of the hall, try to keep this in mind. So you're at the end of a long hall. There's a window at the end. And you're looking out the end of the window, but you're far from the window. You can see stuff out there. Yeah? Yeah. But not very much. Is what you're seeing wrong? No. It's not very complete. And you notice that... As you walk toward, and we're going to walk towards it in our imagination, but walk towards the window. And as you get closer to the window, what happens? You see more, don't you? I kind of think sometimes this is what's going on with like the, uh, the way that God has revealed as we go through the, the pages of the Bible from the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament. Like, it's not that what we see early on is wrong. It's just not very complete yet. And the more you see, the more you see. <laughs> and... Um, Anyway, but we get all the way up to the window and you can see quite a bit. And yet even still, as much as you can see standing right next to the window, that's not the same thing as being outside, is it? And so uh, here he's looking forward and he says, you know, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. Paul recognizes that right now he only knows in part and that uh, there is an aspect that he is still looking forward to of being able to know fully 
being face-to-face. But here's what's so cool. He also recognizes that uh, though he (laughs) knows in part, that doesn't mean that God knows in part. It doesn't work the other way. How cool is that? And he says, so then I shall know fully and not, and then he shall also know me fully. No, it's an I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. That he already knows us that way, and that one day we'll get to know him that way too. So cool. Back to the image of a child. When we are looking at, um, at love, the description of love, the way that Jesus, uh, you think about the way that the disciples had their perspective changed on the other side of the resurrection. The way that Peter understood Jesus' sacrifice and his death before the cross and then after. Very different. Before the cross, Peter's saying, that's not the right way to go. Afterwards, Peter himself goes to a cross. Afterwards, the disciples who fled when Jesus was arrested later were glad to be arrested. They had a different perspective. And uh, what we are told, what we just read from uh, 1 John, is we are children. And he means this, I think, in multiple ways. One, in an inheritance sense. But I think also in the sense that Jesus talks about having the faith of a child. That even when we don't understand, we still have to trust. Can you imagine a child who only would do as they were told if they fully understood? Some of you may have been a child who tried to play that game. That's no good. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. There's some things you can't understand until you're an adult. That's just how it works. And no matter how old we are, we're all children of God in that sense. And so there will be things that we don't understand yet, and there will be things that we will see and we'll go, that doesn't make any sense. Why would we serve someone like that? Why would we love like that? And sometimes the answer is, I don't know. But that's what we've been told to do. That's what we have been commanded to do, and that is what Jesus did. And therefore, if we are going to follow him, that means we actually have to follow him. And if we are going to have faith in him, that means we actually have to trust him. But I do like, though there are things that we say now, I don't know why, it does seem to be this indication that at some point, those questions get answered. We see a bigger picture. We see him face to face. We understand more fully than we can understand now. It doesn't mean that we don't understand anything now. We understand a lot. But not fully. So for those of you uh, who hear uh, this high bar of love and you say, yes, I want to do that, 
but it's hard. Jesus is the answer. And for those of you who say, I don't know that I do want to do that. That sounds crazy. Jesus is the answer there too. And not just in what he taught, but how he actually lived. And not just in how he lived, but also in how he died. And the reason that he died. We will celebrate the Lord's uh, Supper here in just a few minutes. And as we do so, uh, I want you to remember that this is a, a time where we not only remember the death of Jesus, but we participate. We participate in the supper together as those who are the people, who are the body of Christ, and as people who have been loved by him in this way and now feed on him as we become the people who love this way. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.